0: turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll we'll actually backtrack to uh, one verse, verse 9 that Noah had covered. So um, Noah had last week, he talked about um, the spiritual growth or you could say the lack of spiritual growth of the church of at Corinth. Now Paul in this passage takes uh, a little more poignant look at people who are supposed to be facilitating in the help of the Corinthian church and the growth of the Corinthian church. So Paul really takes aim at a look at teachers in this passage. So we're going to look at, you know, how should a teacher be teaching? What kind of attitude should a teacher have? How should we view teachers of the word? So looking at verse 9, we see Paul say, For we are... God's fellow workers, your God's field, your God's building. Paul switches his analogy here. He's been using, um, you could say, a farming analogy or agriculture as a picture of the work he's done at Corinth. As Paul put he planted and Apollos watered. Uh, Paul in this verse, he changes his metaphor to construction. He tells the Corinthians in verse 9 that they are God's field, referencing his work as a farmer, then states, you are God's building, switching to construction. Verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now one thing you notice about this verse in verse 10, Paul, you could say he was a very first uh, he was the first person who founded the Corinthian church. He was the first teacher there. But he's very humble in, his, in talking about his work there. He takes no glory in being the person who planted the Corinthian church. He states that his ministry was according to the, to the grace of God given to him. Now, Paul, he was not able to plant the Corinthian church because he was especially brilliant or special in himself, but he said it was through God's grace. God showed favor to Paul, using him and working through him to plant the Corinthian church. And it's really a good application for our lives, too. Now, Paul could have easily become proud of himself with the work he had done at Corinth. I don't think many of us could say in this room that we planted a church. But Paul, he humbly gives the Lord credit. He doesn't glory in himself. He doesn't let it get to his head. And he states simply that it was the grace of God given to him that allowed him to do the work at Corinth. And really, in anything we do for the Lord, whether it's um, achieving something in ministry, or leading someone to the Lord or teaching a Bible study. We should give credit to the Lord that it's all done according to the grace given to us. In this verse, Paul, he likens himself to a master builder or if we want to put it in modern terms, he's like the architect who's building a building. Now, in the construction of any building, the first step is to lay the foundation. Paul laying the foundation corresponds to him sharing the gospel with the Corinthians and sharing basic doctrine with them. But uh, towards the end of the verse, Paul says here, another builds on it. So um, who's Paul talking about when he's saying, this um, person who is another. This refers to peop- other people who were teaching at the Corinthian church. Paul had, laid the, Paul had laid the initial foundation, but other people were now helping build a church at Corinth by also teaching there, or they were supposed to be helping. Because it doesn't look like that all the teaching was helped for good at, at, in Corinth at the time. So how do you build on a foundation? Now, I'm a bit out of practice. I've had a little little construction experience, but when you're building a building, you wanna look for the best possible building materials. You wanna use materials that will really fit with the foundation. Now, Paul gives a warning saying, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, which implies some people may not have been careful with how they were building on the foundation laid by Paul. Verse 11, Paul says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul makes it very clear, if he wasn't already, what the foundation is. It's Jesus Christ. Now a church is a group of people. It's not a physical building, but if it were a literal building, all parts of it would be connected to and built on one foundation, the Lord Jesus. The church only exists because of the Lord. We're completely dependent on him for everything. I'm part of the church because I believe the gospel of Christ, that he went to the cross, he died for my sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. Everyone in the church should be basing what they do and what they say on the Lord Jesus' teaching. If anyone teaches in the church, or as Paul is describing, builds into the foundation, any teaching should be in keeping with the Lord Jesus and his teachings. Now, a mistake some of the Corinthians may have been falling into was that they were using teachers like Paul or Apollos as their foundation, basing everything they did or said based on men and not on the Lord himself. Verses 12 to 13, Paul lists some different building materials. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, um, looking at these um, materials as physical items, as the the literal materials, it's pretty obvious what 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 will be burned up and what won't be. Things like um, gold, silver, and precious stones are not burned up by fire. Things like wood, hay, and straw are easily burned by fire. Now these different different building materials, they're pictures of the kind of work different teachers were doing in the church at Corinth. The work of good teachers in Corinth Paul likens to silver or gold, or things that would not be destroyed by fire. The work of a bad teacher would have been something like hair straw, something that would be easily burned up. And by the way, this whole illustration of a building, it really reveals what should be the role of a teacher in the church. A teacher in the church is is supposed to help build If I want to be a good teacher, whether it's me preaching a message or leading a Bible study, my goal should be to build. I should be looking to build up a church. I should be looking to help believers grow. I should be looking to help the local body of believers become stronger. If I'm teaching in such a way that I'm teaching because I want to show off my Bible knowledge or put myself on display, I'm teaching contrary to how the scripture wants me to teach or how God wants me to teach. And at that point, I'm not really building. You could say I'm really building with worthless material. Now in verse 13, it says, the day will declare it. That is, the, the day will make obvious what kind of work has been done. Now what, what is this, this day mentioned here? Now, my Bible is actually capitalized. And this day, this day is a day of judgment. Now, this is not the judgment in, in, at the end of the book of Revelation, where people are judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire. As believers, we don't have to fear that, we don't have to fear that judgment. We've been saved from hell for all eternity. But there is still a day of judgment coming for believers. We will be judged by the Lord for all the things we have done in the eternal lifetime He's given us. These verses are still are talking about judgment pertaining to teachers of Corinth. But um, um, really, this is applied to um, the fact that any teacher will be facing. Uh, judgment in the times to come of what how he's t- he has taught the word or not taught the word. It says the Lord is going to test each teacher's work. Now, it's a very common thing to subject something to a little stress test to see just what's made of. Now, me being a healthcare worker, I'm really, frankly, most familiar with... Um, healthcare-related stress tests. So when I do what's called a manual muscle test, I'm trying to test to see how strong someone's muscles are. Now, I might ask someone to stretch out their arm, and I'll give a little pressure and see if they can take a little resistance. And if a doctor wants to see how well someone's heart's working, they do what's called a cardiac stress test. They might put a patient on a treadmill and see just how well that person's heart responds to a little stress. Now when it comes to a teacher in the church, the Lord is going to give the teacher's work a stress test. And it's going to be done by fire. In verses 14 to 15, we look at the results of that stress test. In verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So that is, if anyone's work which he has built endures, that is, if the teacher's work passes the test given by the Lord, it says that believer will receive a reward. Now, the Lord doesn't say exactly what that reward is. But I think we can rest assured that whatever it is, it's going to be something awesome, something that will make all that teacher's labors seem more than worth it. When looking at verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, this is a teacher um, whose teaching has not survived the test given by the Lord. And we see this person suffers loss. So, if you're a teacher of the, in the church and not teaching properly, it says your work will be burned. You're going to see all the things you work so hard for just burned up in smoke. Now, the salvation of these teachers is not in question. It says a person will be saved, yet so as through a fire. <coughs> but the thing is, if you're a teacher who's been teaching this way, if, if your work really has been worthless, it's going to be a very crushing feeling at the judgment, at the judgment seat of God. It's going to be a very unpleasant experience when you see that all the things you spent so much time and energy on were worthless in the sight of God. Now you might wonder, how do I know if I'm a teacher that's teaching in the right way as opposed to the wrong way? How do I know that I'm teaching in such a way that I know that my works will endure as opposed to being burned up? How to know that I'm building with gold or silver or precious stones as opposed to wood, hair, or straw. I think we can see some of it just in this passage. We see later in this passage, Paul talks about some teachers who had the wrong idea about teaching, who were trying to inject worldly wisdom and their own cleverness into teaching the Word of God. If I'm teaching with some bad motives in mind, God will not reward that kind of work. It can be a temptation for someone teaching the word to use the opportunity to promote themselves, to show off their own knowledge of the word. That's the kind of work as a teacher that the Lord has no use for. That's the kind of work that will be burned up. On the other hand, if I'm teaching with godly fear and I'm aiming by my teaching to serve the Lord sincerely and to really look at how I can help the believers and see them blessed, then that's the kind of work that will endure. Going on to verse 16, Paul asks the question, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And Paul asks this because he wants to impress on the Corinthians that it's not just any building that Paul has laid the foundation for and that other people are building To impress on the Corinthians just how important and how special the building under construction is, Paul reveals that they are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, in the Old Testament, and before the Lord Jesus came to earth, the temple of God was a literal physical building in Jerusalem. And on its completion, it said that God's glory filled that temple. And we see God angry whenever something is brought into the temple that doesn't belong there. Or whenever something is being done in the temple that should not be done. I think we all know the passage where the Lord Jesus was furious when the money changers were in the temple and he drove them out saying, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made a den of thieves. So we see with the physical temple, God was very protective of it. But in this present time, the Lord says, we believers, us collectively, as a body of Christ, we are the temple of God. Now, if the Lord was protective of the physical temple in Jerusalem, you can bet he's going to be protective of the temple as it now exists, as a church. So in verse 17... Paul says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. How, how does someone defile the temple of God? Now in this context, it refers to people teaching something not just worthless. That was just in the past few verses. This is talking about something, something destructive. The word defile actually could, is actually the same word for Destroy. So you could say that um, the, building, the teachers who are building with hay or straw or wood, that was the work of a teacher who was teaching constructive, not, not constructively or teaching uselessly. But a teacher who is defiling the, defiling the temple of God by teaching something destructive, you can say this person is really bringing something into the temple of God that should not be there something that's leading people away from God, leading people away from proper doctrine, and leading them away from walking properly with the Lord. And the Lord says judgment is coming to someone who teaches like this. God says he will destroy him. Now what does this word mean, destroy? Destroy? We see it later um, there's in the, another book, Second Peter, that deals with false teachers. This word, destroy, is also used in regards to the fate of these kind of teachers. The Lord's really going to punish these people in eternity, in hell, for what they've done. This per- kind of person is a false teacher who's going to be utterly destroyed in eternity. And further in verse 17, the Lord gives the reason for why he punishes someone teaching in this way so severely. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What does the word holy mean? It means means separate to God, set apart to God. God has set apart the church his temple, purely for himself. It's his treasured possession. If something is holy, it's meant for God alone. He wants it in the best possible condition. And as the Lord is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he really deserves the best. He wants his church to be pure and undefiled. And perfect. Going on to verse 18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you think, seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let no one deceive himself. How were some of the Corinthians deceived themselves? themselves? Well, back in um, chapter 1 of this book, Paul mentioned that a lot of these, the Corinthians were uh, tied up in wisdom of words. Now, some of the Corinthians thought they were being very good, at teaching the Word of God by mixing in worldly wisdom with teaching the Word, perhaps. They thought by using some flashy rhetoric, by using fancy arguments, by using their own intellectual cleverness. They were displaying great wisdom. Now, in the worldly sense, they were. I mean, the world likes to see people speaking in a very elegant way and using fancy arguments. But the Lord has no use for that kind of wisdom. And Paul pretty bluntly tells the Corinthians something like, um, you're fooling yourselves if you think this. Uh, really, this uh, phrase, let no one deceive himself, you could may translate it in today's language as uh, quit fooling yourself. You may think you're being wise and clever, but you're not. And Paul is actually very uh, biting in his rebuke here. Because he says, you know, they're really not wise at all, people who are thinking like this. But in verse 18, he actually says, um, thinking like this just seems to be wise. Now, Paul tells these kind of people with their um, fancy rhetoric to become a fool that he may become wise. Now, Paul is not telling these people to go do something stupid. But he wants them to give up on using their own intellectual powers and wisdom, and in this sense, become a fool to try and do the work of God and minister to the church. Now, this is what real wisdom is, according to God. This is uh, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, in the world's eyes, a couple of verses like that might seem like intellectual suicide, because you're saying, well, don't trust yourself at all, but trust someone else. And you know, in a country, in a country like Greece, where it was a place renowned for its philosophers, the natural tendency may have been to lean on your own understanding and to trust yourself to direct your path. And we still see that in the world today. You know, how many times have we heard things like, you know, trust yourself, or believe in yourself, or, or look to your heart? But Paul says this kind of wisdom, this wisdom of the world, it's foolishness with God. Way are thinking just in this kind of way, it's, it's stupid. The way to be wise in God's eyes is not to trust yourself, but to trust him with everything. And Paul, he has a very stark assessment of worldly wisdom here. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The Lord will catch the wise in their own craftiness. Well, this uh, verse here, the Lord says, if you're going to try and be crafty and use your worldly wisdom to try and advance your own interests, the Lord will bring this down on your own head. It's not going to end well for you. He says the thoughts of the wise are futile or vain. Now, the Greek word futile or vain, it literally means... Void of result. Now, people put a lot of work into worldly wisdom, but the sad thing is it ends up producing absolutely nothing useful, according to Paul. No results, nothing to show for it. And so Paul says in verse 21, Therefore, let no one boast in men. Because if worldly wisdom is the very best that man can do, it makes no no sense to boast in men. And the rest of this passage, Paul gives, I think of it as a kind of spiritual zoom out. Paul's trying to make the Corinthians in these last few verses see the big picture and see why it's really so ridiculous to be divided over particular teachers. Going on in verse 21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God. Now just to review briefly, Some people in the Corinthian church were divided over particular teachers. Some people were saying, I am a Paul. Some were saying, I am a Paulus. I'm of a Paulus. Or I am of Cephas. Some people were making themselves out to be superior to other believers based on their association with a certain teacher. Now, Paul actually flips things around here. Instead of a Instead of a believer belonging to a particular teacher, Paul says the teachers belong to the believers. And for, from a cultural perspective, this may have been a real um, thing that the Corinthians had to really think about. Because, like I said, Greece was renowned for its philosophers. The Corinthians may have been used to people belonging to various teachers. But Paul says, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos and Cephas, we are all yours. And really, this points again to the proper place and attitude of a teacher. If I'm a teacher of the word, I'm really being a servant. I should be seeking to serve the Lord, and I should be seeking to serve the saints. I'm really seeking what I can do for the spiritual benefit of my fellow believers. I should not be seeking my own personal benefit. Now looking back at the passage that Noah covered last week, Paul calls himself and Apollos ministers. And that word minister, we can sometimes forget, that word minister means servant. And Paul, Paul goes on to say in these verses too that there's so much more the Corinthians have to see. As believers, they have been given a lot. You know, as believers, we're going to inherit the earth in times to come. We'll be reigning alongside the Lord Jesus in times to come. We'll, place, we'll be placed in a future position of high authority, you know, judging even angels. So, if anything, those are things to boast about. It seems kind of silly. Why am I boasting about being a follower of a particular teacher when in eternity I'll be someone who will be reigning alongside the Lord Jesus? And Paul also addresses the. Um, The fourth faction of divisive believers, those who are mentioned in chapter 1 as saying, I am of Christ. Now, just to review, it looked like there are some Corinthians who are saying, um, trying to appear spiritual, saying, I am not a particular follower of any particular teacher. I am of Christ. I don't know about the rest of you, but you guys are probably not following the Lord. Paul, however, uses the collective you here. He's addressing all the Corinthians and saying, that all the Corinthians belong to Christ, and by belonging to Christ, they all belong to God. There's no one that should be excluded here. Now, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, um, you know, how exactly do these verses pertain to me? Because um, you know, you might be thinking, I'm not a teacher of the word, and. I probably will never be a teacher of the word. So. And I'm in no danger of um, teaching them properly or using worldly wisdom in my teaching because of this. But the fact is, these verses, they're still um, applicable to me, even if I'm not a teacher. You know, As believers, we've all been built on the same foundation on the Lord Jesus. And we all need to take heed with what we do with the eternal life that God has given us. Because the fact is, the the day of judgment still applies to me as well. It's not just teachers who will be judged for their works on the day of judgment. I'm just going to read a few verses uh, from Romans 14. This is Romans 14.10. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, "As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God." So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, the context—the context in Romans is talking about how we treat our fellow believers, but the fact is, God is saying that all of us will have to give account. That is, we'll have to explain to God what we have done with our lives before him in the future. There's going to be an evaluation at the end of my life, and I'll be judged for what I've done or not done with the eternal life that God's given me. Now so let me ask myself, what kind of things am I doing with the life that the Lord's given me? Am I doing things at this present time that I will meet with approval when the Lord judges me? Or will the things I'm engaged in at this present time, my works, will they be burned up at the judgment seat? Because there's plenty of works, you know, we can be very busy with our lives. We can, be, we can do many works for our lives, but not all those works are things that will endure. Now, some things are pretty obviously worthless. Maybe we might be spending some of our time and energy on unprofitable hobbies. Now, people can work very hard at video games. I'll just hit home to myself. Say I've spent years and years studying a martial art and get a black belt. That sounds like a big accomplishment. But, is that something that will withstand the Lord's testing at the judgment? Will that be something that will be remembered for eternity? I have to say, I don't think so. Let's say if I spend a lot of my time and energy pouring myself into my career and obtaining a high position, where I get a bunch of degrees behind my name. Is that something that will matter for eternity? No, it won't. Now, the things I mentioned in themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. Everyone needs a break. People need hobbies to help them relax and unwind after work. People need to do well and work in school. People need to be able to provide for themselves. But as I look at what I'm doing with my life, well, the things I'm accomplishing withstand stand the Lord's testing at the day of judgment. So, what kind of things will endure for eternity? Well, whatever things we do for the Lord, whether in sincerely serving Him, that's the kind of work that will withstand the, te- Lord, the Lord's tests. And maybe serving the Lord by teaching the Word. It may be leading a Bible study. maybe sharing the gospel with someone, seeing them saved. It may be taking time to encourage and comfort a fellow believer. It may be taking time to serve a believer in their time of need. It may be just doing something simple in serving the saints, whether it's just taking care of the kids or doing small jobs around here for the Lord. Really, anything I do for the Lord And sincerely serving him, not myself, that's what we'll endure. Another thing about this day of judgment, sometimes when we know when our evaluation day is, we can procrastinate. I'll have to confess I think this sometimes myself. For instance, if I'm a student, I might see that my final grade won't be determined until the very end of the semester, and I got a whole 17 weeks to work on things. I might not study as hard as I should be. I may not study as hard as I should be initially. I might let, let things go at first. I might think I have plenty of time to do better on my later homework. Or if I'm at work, I might see that my evaluation by my boss is not really to the very end of the year, till December. And when I see myself in January, I think, well, I have plenty of time to shape up in my job. But with the day of judgment of the Lord, the fact is I don't really know when my evaluation day before the Lord is. It could be any day. And I think if I knew it was coming sooner rather than later, I'd have to take a serious look at how I was spending my time and what kind of work I was doing. So to sum things up, if I am in any way going to be teaching the Word of God, whether in a small Bible study or up at the pulpit, these verses should really speak to me about how I should go about teaching. As a teacher of the word, I need to be sure that I have the proper attitude in teaching, that I'm doing it to please God, to be a servant of others, and not to really to not to benefit myself. Because as a teacher of the word, the Lord's given me a solemn task in helping build the church to help build his holy temple. And God's going to judge everyone who's a teacher based on how they've been building. And even if I'm not a teacher, I should still keep in mind that the Lord will judge me according to what I've done or not done for him for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you that we can be your workers in the field, that you have allowed us to work alongside you. We pray that you would help us be diligent in our work for you and we seek to serve you and not ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name.